Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Progress Labour History Project, part of the Progressive Britain podcast. My name is Nathan Yowell. I'm the Director of Progress, I'm the Co-Director of Labour to Win, and I'm going to be your host for this, your monthly dose of discussion and debate about Labour Party history and its relevance to the Labour Party of today. I'll be talking to a wide range of historians, politicians and commentators, shining a light on events, personalities and traditions from across the last century or more, some well-known, some more obscure. For today's first episode, I'm delighted to be joined as co-host by Rachel Reeves. Rachel, welcome and please introduce yourself. Hello, Nathan, and it's great to be with you today and to be uh, part of this this podcast. And uh, as you know, I'm particularly interested in Labour Party history, so this is right up my street, so thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, just to introduce myself to everybody else, I'm Rachel Reeves, I'm the Member of Parliament for Leeds West. I've been the MP there for just over 10 years now, and I serve in the Shadow Cabinet as the Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. And if that doesn't just... Uh, um, that's not too easy to, to remember. Basically, I shadow Michael Gove. And so that means I cover the uh, the brief on exiting the European Union, but also crucial issues about government contracts and procurement, which has obviously been in the news very much recently with the outsourcing of so many of the contracts around coronavirus, often to friends and donors of the Conservative Party. So not very much then. Um, I think you missed something out there, Rachel, because obviously you are an authoress of note about some Labour history. If you could just fill in the audience about the books you've written in the past couple of years as well. Oh, yes, of course. I probably should have done that. Uh, so I've written two books on Labour Party history. The first is Alice in Westminster, which is a, a, a biography of a, a remarkable woman called Alice Bacon, who was first elected in 1945 to serve the constituency of Leeds Northeast. She was the first ever woman to represent any of the Leeds constituencies. And 40 years after she stood down in 1970, I became the second woman to represent any of the Leeds constituencies. So um, I think I um, owe a lot to, to, to Alice. And as the only woman to have done my job in Leeds before me, 
I very much look up to her. The second book is Women of Westminster, which is a broader sweep looking at the 100 years that women have uh, taken their seats in Parliament and the difference that they've made. And the book covers the stories of some remarkable Labour women, including Margaret Bonfield, Ellen Wilkinson, Barbara Castle, and going right up to the present day. Okay, thank you very much. And I would recommend both of them uh, to the, the, the listeners out there if you haven't already already read them. Now, uh, at the end of the podcast today, Rachel and I have got some uh, what we think is exciting news that is book related um, and, and relates to this history podcast. But the main the main item today and our, our special guest for this, uh, this first episode is Daniel Todman. Uh, Daniel is Professor of Modern History at Queen Mary uh, University of London. He was named the Times Young Academic Author of the Year in 2005 for The Great War, Myth and Memory. Uh, he's reached a wider audience and I think much greater acclaim in recent years, though, for Britain's War. His two-volume history of Britain from 1937 to 1947, exploring every aspect of the British experience of the Second World War, both at home and uh, abroad on the battlefront. The second volume, A New World, came out earlier this year. And Daniel is here with us today to discuss the importance of the Second World War to the evolution of the Labour Party, the evolution of the country. Uh, what's particularly interesting, and definitely in light of Rachel's current brief, what lessons we can learn from this period as we muddle through COVID and the threat of renewed lockdown. Daniel, welcome. Uh, thank you. What a great pleasure to have a chance to contribute to this project and to talk about some uh, ideas about the past in a different context. Great stuff. Daniel, can, um, can you set the scene for us? You've taken quite an interesting approach, starting your your two volumes in 1937, uh, before the, uh, the, the the start of the Second World War, and, and ending uh, two years after VE Day in 1947. Could you explain your thinking behind that, and maybe also touch on the central themes that you explore in it? Uh, yes, thank you, Rachel. So, uh, I mean, I think the the reason for that chronology is to think about um, the war as part of a decade of total war, that really I was very struck that if you start in September 1939, uh, you know, the story's already running um, and you need to understand a bit more about what was happening, uh, not least in Britain politically before the war, if you're going to understand anything that happens during it. Uh, and then it needs to run on past 1945 because you don't really see the effects of the war playing fully out uh, until uh, well after it had finished. So uh, the book runs, I think, really from the point where uh, decisions being made about what looks like an approaching war start to affect uh, normal life in Britain uh, right the way through to uh, Indian independence and um, uh, the beginnings of what will be the Marshall Plan in 1947. Um, and some of the themes that I was particularly interested to explore, one was about making the war the central dynamic uh, of uh, a history of the war, that very often um, uh, histories of Britain in the Second World War are written um, uh, separating what was happening on the battlefronts from what was happening at home. There's a division there between um, fighting front and home front, which um, historians of the First World War, for example, would now tend to see as much more blurred. They wouldn't try, I think, just to write the history of one and not the other, um, but also to see it in the right direction. So um, both of you uh, will know Paul Addison's book, The Road to 1945. That's very often how histories of the British politics in the war have been written. Um, it's a brilliant book, but it also uh, incorporates a sense of what's a knowledge of what's going to happen. So if you write the history of the politics of the war in a sense of knowing that they must ultimately lead to a Labour victory in 1945, that can have a distorting effect, I think. So what I was trying to do 
and that's there in the way the books are structured, is to restore a sense of contingency, to restore that sense of uncertainty that contemporaries had about what would happen at the end, even when the war would end, because of course they didn't know uh, that it would have the end point that it did. And I think that's quite interesting, the idea about not separating the home and, and the fighting fronts, partly because what I write about is, is often women in our history. And of course, if you write just about what happens on the fighting fronts, you miss, to a very large extent, the contribution of women in war. Uh, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the contribution of women, particularly there as more women came into the to the, to the labour force out of necessity for the first time. And what impact did that have on, on society, both in the war and afterwards? I mean, I think a, a, a major theme of these books is the extent to which actually it's British women who bear the brunt of the war uh, right the way through, because um, its most sort of universal effects are all around... Um, the experience of households, the experience of work, the experience of household income, uh, and those are the, the people who are managing that are very often British women. Um, so they're the, the nodal point. And an awful lot of um, uh, uh, phenomena that we associate with the war, not least rationing, depend on uh, women's management to operate. <laughs> that actually they're not, uh, although these are imposed by the state, they're, they're things which depend on um, uh, individuals making particular choices, and very often they're women. Um, and I think the history of uh, Britain in the Second World War told through the, I mean, there's a, you're, you're right to spot the tension, which is that if you make a uh, battle central, you're very often writing a chronology determined by men. Uh, and so um, I think there's a challenge there of actually write, finding a way to write women's history into it. Um, but as soon as you turn to the home front and start to say, well, actually, there are loads of men on the home front who never get into uniform. There are loads of men in uniform on the home front who never go to war. Uh, there are lots of women who will experience violence on the home front in an uh, in an enemy-directed state violence uh, in a way that won't affect, for example, um, soldiers who travel overseas to go uh, and service aircraft or in administrative systems. Actually, you know, what we mean by uh, a battlefront and home front is much more complicated uh, than it might first appear. Um, and one of the things that uh, fascinated me was the extent to which um, to which women were not only moving into the labor force, but imagining a future for themselves, but also for their um, uh, their families and their male relations. So, I mean, a lot of the literature now around 1945 um, uh, in particular uh, is about the extent to which um, uh, women vote for absent soldiers. So, you know, there's an appeal to mothers, there's an appeal to wives, vote for your sons, vote for your, uh, 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 um, your husbands who, who might not have a vote because although they're entitled to one, they're overseas uh, in the forces. And it's about envisioning a future uh, on what that future might mean. One of the women who I write about um, a lot in my book and is a real hero of mine is, is Ellen Wilkinson. And she was Minister for Air Aid uh, Shelters during the Second World War. And another woman MP said of her, if you think women cannot stand the strain of war, let one of you try doing what Miss Wilkinson is doing. Uh, and she, she um, drove round the uh, air raid uh, shelters in London and elsewhere. She went to Plymouth and to other places which were badly affected um, by um, the, 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 the blitzing and, uh, and, and, and tried to keep up morale, and obviously particularly amongst women and, and, and children and families. 
so I think this sort of story that you know it was, it was the war is about the, the contribution of those who are fighting is about so much more than that, and I think it's really good that you bring that out um, in your book. Yes, thank you. I mean, and also, of course, women in uh, women in factories, but women also just keeping things uh, running when so many men uh, are, are absent, and and women contributing in their own right as uh, as writers of the war, as commentators on it, as you know, as journalists. And I think that uh, that female voice, yeah, you know, this is a uh, so one of the one of the things I try to show right the way through is the way that the war is being constructed as it's being fought, the way in which it's being depicted on the radio, uh, in newsreel, in films, in, in art, uh, newspaper articles. You know, very often there's a, there is a strong female voice there which is trying to uh, talk about what, what the war is about, what its experience is like, but also uh, what, what is it being fought for. Yeah, I know, just jumping in there, that you were very, you were very definitely bringing back memories for me of what is now got 20 plus years ago of studying this period at university and rereading the words of the mass observation uh, part So those of you listening who uh, haven't read the book or are not history nerds, mass observation is a massive sort of public participation project that started uh, in the late thirties before the start of the second world war, where normal quote unquote people across the country were being asked to write diary entries for their days uh, and, and that extended throughout the course of the war. Um, and what is brilliant now is I assume that most of the archive must be now available and is no longer anonymized. And it's actually just really riveting actually going from the, the, the gobbets of information and, and, and the different ways and different styles in which people were uh, putting down their daily lives. Well, you still need to be very careful. I mean, they all contributed uh, on the basis of anonymity. So you have to be very careful about whether you keep them anonymized. Uh, but yes, I mean, a huge uh, 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 amount of material there um, of very different sorts. So some uh, diarists who are very reflective and um, uh, modern in their views, but also an awful lot of of overheard conversations, of um, interviews with people on the doorstep. Um, and some of the some of the most moving uh, uh, mass observation sources that uh, I use in the book were they did a, a survey about um, ideas around marriage and the post-war um, in 1944, which involved um, sort of household interviews um, with women around London. And there, just to get a sense of the variety of what the war had meant on the home front, that for some people it's a moment of liberation. It's thank goodness my my husband was a horrible man. Thank goodness he's away. Uh, I, it's the first dose of freedom I've had. I've got a job and I can spend my money as I like, and I hope this goes on forever. Uh, and for other people, um, you know, their their lives have been broken up. They've had to move house multiple times. Um, uh, they're worried about uh, relations who are elsewhere in the country. Their husband might be a prisoner of war or something like that, and they just can't look forward to the future. The war's wrecked everything. And I think that sense of, um, you know, the, the, these these sources weren't gathered to tell those stories, but actually what they restore is that incredible variety of experience. Uh, and they encourage us not to impose one meaning uh, on this conflict when for individuals it could have a whole host of meanings. So one more question uh, about, about the period in general before we take a deep dive into our specialist subject, which we talk about far too much probably, but the Labour Party. Um, one thing I really quite liked about the book, and I hope you, you referenced it earlier on, is is you really trying to push the importance of this this long Second World War, if you like, because obviously, and also you start thinking about how you're trying to revise what are some of the stereotypes and common perceptions of the period. I mean, I find it quite interesting 
you can read the first bits of the book and the likes of Stanley Baldwin and Chamberlain, who were forever damned in the way in, in the writing of, of, of Michael Foote in Guilty Men as, as having done nothing in the 1930s. But I think you deconstruct that slightly and say, actually, in those last couple of years, in the run up to 1939, there was uh, quite a lot of effort going on uh, by the state. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, the other thing I think is really important that, that, that you're pushing um, is obviously too much of modern stereotypical knowledge or perception of the Second World War is based in the writings of, of, of Churchill after the Second World War. So essentially he, he won it and he, he, he had his, his vision of what the country was and what the country should be and standing alone and, and, and whatnot. So I've got a question. I think, do you think that our perceptions of the Second World War and the Second World War is such a big cultural, political, economic phenomenon um, in, in 20th century British life do you think it actually has now more of a positive or a negative influence on our lives and how we view ourselves and the national story? I mean, it obviously is the great foundational story of the second half of the 20th century. But also for others, I'm thinking now of some of our opponents um, on, on the right and definitely some of those people sort of like Nigel Farage, etc. It's quite a regressive vision of the country that they've, they've ended up taking from the Second World War. I mean, quite quite backward looking, if you like, that actually the 1930s, if not the 1950s, I guess, to a certain extent, are the time frame, the time periods they're, they're harking back for. I mean, and to what extent do you think actually those perceptions and myths of the Second World War have actually become pretty toxic in how we live our lives and definitely um, political debate in the country today? Um, I think there's a... Uh... There's an issue, there's a wider issue around the past, isn't there? That actually very often what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, contemporary political references to historic events are not really uh, those historic events moored in any sense of understanding or, or, or deeper reading in the past. They've become kind of signifiers which could be floating free. Uh, and that's true, you know, that's obviously true around things to do with the Second World War and the Battle of Britain, um, the Blitz, uh, but it's true of other references as well. And we live in a period where, uh, you know, the, I think the passage of information is um, uh, is memified to, to a degree. Um, I would think that the Second World War still has an awful lot of potential to be a force for uh, unity, if not, I mean, uh, depending on your political position, you may or may not think unity is a good thing. Um, but I think there's still room there for people to come together. Uh, I mean, I'm very struck by some of the arguments that Sundar Katwala makes around um, the war potentially being a place for people to talk about things and um, and bridge divides. That it actually most people, you know, there's a, most people don't want a culture war about the war. There's still a great, uh, a great tradition of um, respectful remembrance, uh, but to do that, you have to have an ability to agree to disagree, or that once you start looking at these historic events, you're going to come up with things that people um, uh, find difficult. So, I know for me, the problem would not be the Second World War; it would be the the way in which it's represented and the way it can be reused. But I also think there's an exciting um, sort of uh, uh, potentiality there, which is to use the war as a way to engage people uh, to start to think about some of the things they want to discuss in their uh, about about Britain today, um, uh, but also as a way to get them to think on their own terms about complexity. So, I, you know, those. 
that Farage version of the war is terribly uh, simplified. I mean, so too would be a uh, a Labour version of the war that says it's all about an inevitable march to 1945. Actually, once you start looking at uh, experiences, it becomes much more complex. So I think some of the things that I try and do when I work with students around um, the war is to ask them to look at you know, individual experiences. Because as soon as you go to the level of individual experiences, things are complicated. And we're all used to complicated individual experiences because that's what happens in our own lives. So I think there's a great myth that people can't cope with complexity now. People cope with complexity every day, but maybe they can't cope with the complexity that's offered to them around historic events if the choice they get is binary. You know, either the war is a good thing or a bad thing, or uh, you know, anybody who doubts Churchill is inevitably somebody who hates Britain. Thank you, um, Dan. That was really um, interesting. I, I just wanted to go back to what Nathan was saying before and, and take a little deeper look into what the Second World War uh, did to, to the Labour Party and also the perceptions um, of the Labour Party changing during the, the Second World uh, War. Obviously, the only experience before 1945 of Labour in government was Ramsay MacDonald, and that ended disastrously and particularly disastrously for the Labour Party with the National Coalition. Uh, Labour almost wiped out in 1931, a bit of a comeback in 1935, but a very long way, a very long way it seemed from being in power. And yet at the next election, admittedly 10 years later because of the war, but at the next election, there was a Labour landslide. How did Labour get from where it was in 35 in the public mind to where it got to in 1945? Well, different explanations of that, as you as you will know. Um, so, I mean, I think what one would be um, that actually Labour's making some progress uh, even post uh, thirty five before the war breaks out. It's making particular progress in uh, in London under the leadership of Herbert Morrison. Um, it still obviously has a very long way to go, and there's no expectation in Labour. Um, that they're going to win the general election that's due in normal circumstances uh, by 1940. Uh, but the war creates a, an astonishing moment of leverage for the for the organised labour movement. And it's, so I think that's really the fundamental point to get is this is not really about the parliamentary party. It is above all about the trade union movement. It's what gives labour the chance for power because everybody knows um, uh, as the war approaches, because they've all been through the First World War. Everybody knows that if you're going to mobilise the nation for uh, battle again, you're going to need the cooperation of the trade unions. Uh, and the, the trade union movement sticks together. It doesn't split as during the First World War. Uh, they are never going to enter fully into uh, government while Neville Chamberlain is prime minister. I think that I mean, one of the things I found fascinating writing the first book is is the extent to which Labour policy is, is um, uh, balanced on a knife edge when it comes to uh, the timing of what to do in 1939 and 1940. If a, if a great crisis of the war develops and Labour hasn't gone into government, it hasn't accepted offers uh, to, to go into government, it's going to look awful, you know, um, and that might doom its reputation even more or force it into a split. But in fact, uh, the Chamberlain government falls before the crisis in the war happens. And that means that, uh, you know, uh, a new coalition can be built under Churchill. Uh, he offers, um, uh, uh, well, it's, you know, it's only because the Labour Party will come in that Churchill's, uh, you know, an acceptable um, prime minister. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think that that creates this moment where Labour can then prove itself in government. Um, 
at the same time, the war destroys the reputation of interwar conservatism amongst a lot of people who would have, in, a, in other circumstances, continued to vote um, for uh, uh, the conservative-dominated national government. Um, so by the time 1945 comes, you've got a combination of um, uh, a conservative party with its reputation wrecked, but not realising how badly... Uh, they're still very uh, certain of the the value that they'll get at the ballot box from being led by Churchill, um, and a Labour Party which looks uh, much more respectable, that looks much more patriotic than it had done uh, uh, between the wars, but which has also got um, uh, an organisational base and a financial base much improved from its interwar position. You know, uh, many more people have joined trade unions. Uh, the party's um, funds to fight the general election in '45 are still nowhere near what the Conservatives had, but much better um, than they'd ever been between the wars. Uh, and I think that puts Labour into a much more, a position where success is much more likely even if it's still not certain. And I think the, the final part of that mix is is Herbert Morrison, actually, uh, and his success, not just as a cabinet minister, but in his, his success in planning that 45 election campaign, um, in producing, overseeing the production of a manifesto which really appeals to people who have been through these hard years of the war, who want something better, uh, and the Labour 45 Manifesto really gives them a vision of what that might be. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A little bit more on, on that, uh, Daniel, because I think that's really interesting. The experience of, of the Second World War in many ways changed what people wanted from their government. Is that a fair way of looking uh, uh, at it? Uh, I think I think they what what do people want from governments? They eh? they want competence. They want uh, the delivery. They want hope of um, uh, of things being better. Uh, and I think um, uh, you know what I think the war produces is a desire for fairness as well. And maybe that's always there. You know, uh, underneath, I think it's easy to underestimate how much people, even in a very individualistic society like we have now, believe that things ought to be fair or at least not unfair. Um, uh, but it, 
I think what uh, the war does is to bring all of those things to the fore, but also to legitimate a vote for somebody other than the people who've been in power during the 30s. So, you know, that 45 election, there's an awful lot of people who cast their vote with two fingers stuck up, not in a Trachillian V, uh, but in a V sign to um, uh, what they decided the 1930s were about, which was about failure, uh, failure uh, economically in terms of looking after the, the bits of the country that are worst hit by the depression, but actually more importantly, a failure in national security terms. Uh, and by 1945, those those things just can't be cast at Labour's door. It, you know, it, there's no 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 way that you can call uh, Clement Attlee or uh, Ernie Bevan unpatriotic when they've been leading the war effort on the home front. And I think the fact that in your book you talk about the home front, to come back to this point, the home front and the fighting front. On the home front, uh, domestic policies were in many ways dominated by um, Ernie Bevan and by Herbert Morrison. Is, is that? part of it that they were connected with the people maybe during the war oh i think that's right and the uh they seem to have done a good job um uh they seem to have been putting practical labor policies into operation um uh and i think that you know there's there's two you know first of all it's obvious that the state can take over and run things you know we've got to remember labor's 45 program is uh all about socialist planning as the solution to all the country's economic woes. Well, you know, the idea that the state could take over and run things successfully wasn't very electorally appealing in the 1930s. By 1940, it's just a fact of life. Uh, so the idea that the state should nationalise coal mines if they're not operating very effectively seems like a good idea. Uh, and, you know, in terms of uh, fairness, you've got a society where things have been more equal, not totally equal, but more equal. But I think also Labour can demonstrate competence. So that's really what Bevan and Morrison have done, uh, is, is be competent in their home front jobs. And, and what the, the uh, soldiers being demobilised, uh, uh, factory workers coming out of armaments factories, what do they want? They want some stability. They want homes. And who are you going to trust to deliver this? Are you going to trust the Conservatives? Are you going to trust Labour? Well, in 1945, an awful lot of people are willing to trust Labour to do that. And that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Um, just to, to, to continue on Rachel's point, that the, the balance of sort of Labour to, to Conservative um, politicians involved with sort of home front ministries as opposed to um, sort of defence air war ministries in the Second World War meant that essentially a lot of the Labour politicians who were involved in, um, in, in the War Cabinet and below could really get their teeth stuck into that. And definitely after 1943, that wave of planning for the future, which was, I mean, one of the, the hallmarks of the, the last two or three years of that coalition government. But it is quite interesting now, and, and it really comes through in the book, just how much some uh, Labour members made of the opportunity that was given to them after, after 1942, 1943, to start doing the thinking that they needed to do which led them, if you like, to what they could do in the manifesto in 1945. Yes, I mean, it's interesting that they, uh, in a way, Labour Labour practical thought about what will you do in government doesn't advance that far in the sense that planning is still seen as the panacea. Uh, how you'll actually do planning on a national scale, because it's, ne you know, planning's never really achieved uh, during the war, except for running bits of the war economy, how will you do this in a uh, um, uh, in a non-war state? 
um, is uh, uh, something that isn't really solved. Uh, but they have started thinking more seriously. So there's, you know, there's two sides. One is thinking about uh, thinking about how a future Labour government would operate, but also thinking about what could go into um, a reconstruction. What, what would Labour's ask be in a, a reconstruction government? Because you've got to remember that most um, most Labour politicians don't expect they're going to win a big majority mm. in any post-war election. Um, they're always tempted by the possibility, well, maybe if you're not going to win, maybe what you should do is take the offer which Churchill might well make of a continuing national coalition to manage the post-war. Uh, particularly if you're not quite sure when the war with Japan's going to end. So, you know, the idea of maybe a, a continued coalition working until about 1947 is one that a lot of Labour politicians toy with uh, because it might allow you to make further progress on embedding some of these key socialist ideas in practice uh, than being out of office if the, you take the gamble of an election. So, you know, that's, that's, a, that's really bound up with that sense of contingency and not being certain what might happen next. They don't know that this big majority is coming. On that point, then, so th that I've always been quite interested in this concept of reconstruction, both up, both after the First World War and, and indeed the Second World what, what, what we're talking about today, the Second World War. Um, do you think there's something ab about it then that, that, that Labour was actually much better equipped to deal with those concepts of reconstruction, definitely compared to the interwar, the interwar national governments? And actually, why is it? Do you think? Because obviously, you, you, as I mentioned earlier on, you 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 wrote at length about the First World War. Why do you think it is that those reconstruction efforts really took hold in the 1940s in the way that they essentially were snuffed out um, after about 1920, after, after the First World War? I mean, a, a big reason why, the, why, why Labour is better at it than the Conservatives is, is Churchill, who uh, never gives the Tory party a proper lead on reconstruction. The Conservatives are incredibly uh, intellectually vibrant during the war in terms of, you know, it's a much bigger challenge to what, what is conservatism um, uh, than, than it is to what is socialism. Um, the advent of the Second World War. So you know, the, some Conservatives are doing an awful lot of thinking about what will come next, but they never manage to put it together into a coherent programme because the person at the top of the party doesn't want to talk about it at all, partly because uh, you know he, he wants to get on with fighting. Um, mainly, actually, I suspect because he, he just doesn't find it that interesting. Um, and lastly, because it will cause a fight within the party. So it's an issue of party management, that different bits of the Conservative Party have such different visions of what the post-war might be like. You know, Labour's vision is much more coherent, even though bits of it is are disagreed on. They're not disagreed on so much that they can't come together. Um, and why it sticks? Well, one reason is a majority Labour government, which um, has an incredible record of legislative achievement in the first couple of years of office. So, you know, uh, uh, in terms of shifting what the state does, um, uh, uh, that, that, that post-war Attlee government has an awful lot of success. Uh, but there's also a lot about how the international situation and the international economy shifts uh, post-Second World War. So you don't, you know, they're all planning during the conflict for another post-war slump of the sort that you saw uh, after the First World War. But in fact, what they'll see is a period of sustained economic growth uh, because of the way that um, you know, the international economy works post-45 in a way it hadn't operated um, after 1918. Thank you. I wondered whether you see parallels today 
obviously it's a different type of sort of shock to the economy and, and society facing a global pandemic. It was a global war in many ways in, in 1939, um, 1940. Uh, but in terms of the response of, of the state, in, 19, in, the, in the 1940s, in the Second World War, it was the mobilisation of the state. You've spoken about the nationalisations. The response of the Conservative government today to the pandemic has been to go to the private sector to deliver a lot of the essential functions, obviously clapping for care workers and those who work for the NHS and our, our key workers. But so much of the additional functionality the government have outsourced to Serco and to Randox uh, and other companies, a very different approach. I, I think the, the wrong approach. Are the Conservatives today very different, do you think, from the Conservatives of then? Oh, fundamentally, I mean, so different, it's hard to see a comparison. Uh, I mean, in their, in their relationship to... Uh, to what reality is yeah sure um in terms of their function of making i mean it seems to me the conservative party now has been hollowed out by a kind of um a parasitical tendency the desire of which is to make rich people richer rather than to conserve things um so uh you know i uh although this will probably get me thrown off this podcast, I proudly call myself a Chamberlainite conservative in the sense that, you know, I think uh, uh, ensuring, ensuring, ensuring social stability, looking after the worst off in society, trying to get your health and welfare system functioning, uh, driven essentially by the state, uh, of all things that Neville Chamberlain thought were a very good idea. Um, so, you know, those those are things which are, you know, are foreign to the spirit of the Conservative Party now, sadly. Um so, uh, you know, I think that means that the nature of mobilization is different. The people who are controlling it. Well, you know, the, the wartime state does an awful lot of close work with the private sector um, uh, and uh, its successes come from that. People make big money um, from the national mobilization during the Second World War. But one of the one of the British state's successes in 39-45 is to sort of balance that off. So everybody's making some, not everybody's making the same sacrifice, but everybody's making some sacrifice. Nobody is going to be making profits so outrageous that it, it threatens the ability of, um, of society to keep coming together towards a common goal. Um, and I think, you know, that that's a fundamental difference from today. The, it obviously produces anger. The risk is it also produces a sort of sense of disenfranchisement and disillusionment, which makes any collective action very difficult. Um, and the, the Second World War, the, the key problem is a, a shortage of manpower, of, 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 under, uh, of overemployment, if you like. There aren't enough people to do everything that needs to be done. You know, the economic crisis we're, we're facing now is one of underemployment. Uh, yeah. And that means that organized labor doesn't have the same strength. Hmm. You know, so the, the leverage there. You know, there, there was discussion at the, um, the the sort of start of the, the COVID crisis of, you know, could would a national government come about? It's it's a lot harder to see how a national government would come into being now, even if uh, uh, um, the Labour leadership thought it was a good idea, which I suspect they wouldn't, um, because there isn't that there isn't that point of leverage. There's got to be a there's got to be a political showdown uh, first. Just to sort of come back to a point I was making. Um, earlier, a question I asked earlier, after the Second World War, it does feel like you know people wanted 
to build something different in the wake of the Second World War, a different type of society compared to what you had in the interwar uh, years, very different response compared with at the end of the First World War, for example. Do you think that this is a, a could be it is going to be a moment of change? Uh, I I think I'm uh, I think I'm probably more pessimistic than that. I, I think if you if you look at the what do people want at the end of the Second World War? They want a lot of the things that the uh, the people who were more prosperous had in the 1930s. They just want a different way of getting to them. Um, so people still want, they want aspiration and they want hope. Um, uh, but they're willing to turn to labour to get that. <laughs> um, and I, I fear that we've, we might have the same thing now, which is what, you know, what do people want? They want their, they want the good bits of their pre-crisis lives back. Um are, are they willing to accept a different model to get those? Any any better model, does it actually allow them to have those things back? And how, how do you sell that to the electorate? I mean, it seems to be the one thing that that, that is appealing and, and you can see it gathering pace around um, testing, even as we, uh, we speak. It's about the issue of fairness. Uh, so, you know, fairness can be defined in lots of different ways. But I think... Uh, electors get very angry if things are not perceived to be fair uh and you know if we have a system where some people could, people who can afford to get a test will be able to go out and continue their jobs and people who can't afford to get tested will be un- unemployable um because they won't be able to have any sustained period in the workplace or they'll be working in places you know for employers who don't care about whether they're passing on covid to their um, their, their relatives, you know, it's, that's a that's a big gap in society. Um, it's it's a tragic one for the Labour Party to exploit if that's if that's what's going to be the future. I think there's sort of two things that are maybe a bit more optimistic that I, I would um, point to optimistic for the country and for for for, for Labour. I, I think that this crisis has shown the sort of lack of resilience at a national level, you know, the sixth richest country in the world, and we can't produce the PPE to keep our key workers safe. The fact that going into this pandemic, something like 11 and a half million uh, people had less £100 of of savings, and that people's experience of the pandemic has been very different, you know, depending on whether, you know, you have a, a, you know, a a, a secure, a safe home with a a garden and outside space, or if you're in overcrowded accommodation, and the sort of work you do. And I think it has sort of shown a spotlight on some of the things that just don't work in Mm. our society today. Also, and you mentioned, uh, Daniel, earlier, the point point of competence. It has shown a spotlight on the incompetence of this lot. And I think in marked contrast to to Keir Starmer. So I think um, maybe if we end on a positive note, I certainly think that um, you know this this potentially could be a turning point. And out of the sort of the horror that we have experienced um, over the last few months, that you know perhaps we can um, you know start creating a the fairer and more equal society. That certainly I want to see. I certainly, I certainly agree on the uh, the possibility of demonstrating competence because uh, when you're playing against, I mean, it's not even the B team; it's the C term in com- C team in competence terms. Uh, so that the, you know, let's let's agree to end on that positive note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, uh, Daniel. And for people who haven't read your book, I would highly recommend it. As would I. So um, both books are available at the moment. Both published by. Um, Alan Lane and Penguin. So volume one is out in paperback. Volume two is currently out in hardback, but presumably will be out in paperback 
next year, presumably. Yeah, that, that's right, yeah. yeah. I mean, By the time you finish the first one, the second one will be in paperback. <laughs> <laughs> Just to jump in at your point, I mean, quick, quick, one last point. So in, in Volume 1, Daniel talks quite a lot about what's been called the phony war before, but I think I, I prefer Daniel's phrase of the Boer War, as in B-O-R-E. And I guess I've what, what I've been playing around in my mind while reading volume one for this is whether we're actually in that kind of phony Boer War period, actually, for whatever the new world that COVID is going to thrust us into. And quite frankly, we don't know yet what's going to happen. We've got predictions, we've got projections, but until we actually see what level of economic downturn is actually going to occur and how that's going to affect people in their lives we can only speculate and i think if some of the projections are as bad as as we fear that is the point where we might have some sort of national turning and hopefully the c team the c team will be packed will, 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 will be packed out of down street uh, damn quick but anyway so thanks daniel uh for taking part just to echo um rachel's rachel's comments I, they're amazing books i think i did a lot of work on this myself Many years ago, as a student, but I think it's really revived my, my my interest in the period, and I'm 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 halfway through book two now. I I, I didn't quite manage to get all the way through it before, before today. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. Lastly, then I think Rachel and I also want to tell all the listeners out there uh, we're announcing today. Um, so this. Progress Labour History Project is a podcast. It is also a a, a wider initiative we're running um, to engage academics, commentators, politicians, and and you, the listeners, party members and supporters, much more uh, actively in the study and and discussion about Labour Party history. I think, like Daniel's books, basically bring bring the past alive and ask questions um, about the present. But I think also from a point of view of where the Labour Party has been for the past five years, and actually, Daniel, you mentioned this earlier on. I, I, I underlined it on, on, on my notepad. We've got to be moving beyond some of the binary views we have of ourselves. I think the last five years have been characterised, if you like, by a ding-dong between Jeremy Corbyn and, and Tony Blair. And I think it's time for us to raise our horizons and have a better understanding of the party, why it exists, what it's done, and what the potential is for the future. So as part of this, like I said, we're running a, a project that hopefully will be a, a long running project to look into this and what we're announcing today and it's something that Rachel is collaborating with me on is that next year uh, we are publishing a book um, with Ivy Taurus and Bloomsbury that provisionally we're entitling Rethinking Labour's Past and we've brought together a fantastic lineup of, of current historians and academics all of whom have been tasked with looking at certain events, periods, personalities, uh, personalities rather, and, and, and episodes from Labour's history to start rethinking them to see if actually there is a revisionist approach that we should adopt and then ask themselves the questions, but actually, what is the relevance for the Labour Party in 2020 in this post-Brexit, post-Covid, hopefully at some point, um, environment we're living in? And actually, how can the better understanding of Labour's past help us um, shape a much more positive future. So I'm editing it. Rachel, I'm glad to say, has is, is is co-writing both the introduction and the conclusion with me. And we'll be keeping you updated on the project um, as we get more news. So I just want to say publicly, Rachel, I'm delighted that you're you're taking part. I'm very much looking forward to uh, to taking part as well. And I think uh, we've got a rich and proud history, uh, and I'm looking forward to exploring it more. Well, that makes two of us. Um, 
Right. Okay. That's it for the first episode. I think we, we, we got through it just about unscathed. I'll be back next month. Um, hopefully Rachel will be able to join me co-hosting at some point in the future as well. So thanks very much for listening. Thanks for Rachel. And thanks for Daniel for taking part. And um, I'll be with you again next month. Cheers, everyone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.